Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? Our first tale tonight comes from author J.D. McGregor, entitled The Proposition. My fate was sealed before the curtains dropped. Sickness had already set in. Suspended lights turned and curled inwards. Center stage became fully illuminated. There, standing in the middle of his fellow first-graders, was Geoffrey, my Geoffrey, the son who had made me so proud when he first told me he landed a lead role in the school play. 
No father was meant to feel ill at a time like this. Yet for me, sitting in the rows of seats lined up on the gymnasium floor with the other parents, it felt inevitable. Jeffrey took a couple steps forward. He stood alone ahead of the other children. He began to recite the lines I helped him rehearse just a few hours earlier. At first, I heard his words clearly. In the beginning, he said, there were only a few of us. I mouthed the words along with him silently. With deliberate attention to detail, I tried to stay with every syllable. I tuned in. I didn't want to leave the makeshift auditorium. But times changed, and now we are many. His words sounded further away. The voice had gotten deeper. I started to slip. From this day forward, we will... The rehearsed words trailed off. The voice I then heard was no longer that of my son's. It was the voice of the daytime news anchor broadcasting a breaking report. He spoke with the casual professionalism of a man with no personal connection to the heartache his words would create. The buzzing static of an old TV was audible in the background. It was a recording I could never forget. I had only played it over in my mind a thousand times before. Tragedy strikes close to home today. The body of 18-year-old Westmount resident, Amy Bray, was found in a dumpster behind a bakery near the downtown core. The body shows signs of severe sexual assault and trauma around the neck. All evidence suggests she was strangled to death with a rope. An anonymous tip was given to police this morning, stating that Screaming could be heard from the parking lot, and a bald man could be seen running from the area shortly after. Police were on the scene within minutes, and have since taken homeless man Troy McAllen into custody. Authorities are urging whoever called to step forward and provide more information. The mugshot of his wrinkled face came into view. That bald-headed SOB left his DNA sprinkled all over the crime scene. His eyes glared back at me, just like they did from the TV screen for the first time nearly 12 years prior. I was no longer in the school gym watching my son's play. I was somewhere else. The routine of running through the same memory over and over against my will was not a new development, I'd been trying to get over it with the support of family, friends, and medical professionals for years. But things weren't getting any better. They never got any better. Something needed to change. That much was obvious. The bathroom floor was sticky. My dress pants clung to it as I tried to lift myself above the open toilet. As I knelt there, dry heaving, I dreaded two things. First... The idea of having to wait alone in the school bathroom for the vomit, if there would be any, to come out. Second, the fact that at some point in the evening, I would have to explain to my wife why I had gotten up from my seat. Why I embarrassed both of us as I ran out of the gymnasium with one hand on my mouth, the other on my stomach. I gave up on the former after 25 uneventful minutes. 
But there was no way I was going to try and squeeze my way back to the empty seat in the gym. Instead, I succumbed to the temptation. With shaking fingers, I dialed my brother's number. Hello? Noah answered. His voice sounded tired. He knew my reason for calling. Noah, I said. It's happening again. I'm leaning over the toilet seat in Jeffrey's school bathroom right now. It's bad. It's real bad. I don't think I can get up. The sigh was long on the other end of the line. I clenched my teeth and stretched across the closed toilet lid. Perhaps even my brother, the one person I felt I could trust above anyone else, had grown weary of dealing with me. I couldn't bring myself to blame him, though. On our last phone call, I took the gamble and crossed the line. I mentioned the proposition. Surely I sounded delusional, and perhaps I was delusional. After what I'm sure was much deliberation, Noah spoke again. Roger, remember what the doctor said. Relapses are part of the healing process. You need to keep the pills with you. You always need them on you. But I've been taking them. And all the other pills I've tried for almost ten years now, Noah. It doesn't help. It never helped. Can't make it go away. I think I'm going to try to... Stop it, Noah interjected. I don't want to hear any more about that damn proposition. It's nonsense and you know it's nonsense. I felt strong enough to lift myself off the bathroom floor. I stumbled out of the stall and used the nearest sink for support. I looked at myself in the mirror. The man who looked back didn't look crazy, at least not to me. I'm not delusional, I said. I was there. I was fully there both times. It was real. I remember what it said. Listen. Noah responded, his voice noticeably calmer. There's no one I care about more than you, Roger. Kills me getting these phone calls, though. Amy died 12 years ago. It hurt everyone, not just you. Think about her parents. Think about her two brothers. Think about everyone who knew her at school. Think about everyone else at the party who also could have done something. Hell, even I get nightmares about it. I dug the phone into my ear. Guilt over the amount of stress I was likely putting on Noah ran through me. He never married, and I was the closest family that he had. And this is what I was doing to him. I know it's hard, he continued. But this isn't just about you. Don't forget that. You have a family now, and they need their father. You can't keep disappearing into some twisted fantasy world of self-despair. Amy is dead and you need to move on. And you will move on. That much I promise you. Please don't go down this road. Amy wasn't for you. It's best you don't think about her. There is only pain for you there. <laughs> Noah's voice stopped coming through the phone. Later that night, the bedroom was completely dark. I hadn't let my eyes close since going to bed. They were well adjusted. I relaxed my neck and let my head roll to the side. 
The clock read 2.44 a.m. It was almost time. Chelsea was asleep. At least at that I could be sure. Somehow I managed to avoid explaining my absence during the play. We didn't speak a word about it or anything else after leaving the school. Truth is, she likely knew full well the reason. She was aware of the mental sickness that had controlled my mind for all the years of our marriage. It wasn't fair. All this time, she was stuck between being the supporting wife of a sick man and living with the hurt that came with the knowledge that the source of his misery was longing for another woman. And it wasn't just any woman. She knew Amy well. They used to be best friends. Chelsea had every right to be upset, as I was. More upset, if anything. She was at the party that night as well. Her actions also indirectly led to the final outcome. That night was just like the morning after the party, the first time Chelsea and I had shared a bed together. I had woken up and lay there beside her for some time as she slept. I remembered mixed feelings toward how things had played out the prior night. I was already fantasizing that it would have been Amy who I had slept with instead. I tried to take a mental photo of the scene. Separated by nearly twelve years, Chelsea and I lay together in a bed before something terrible was about to happen. The first and last times were so similar in that way. I rose and tiptoed toward the door. Before I left the room, I momentarily considered looking back. I owed Chelsea that, at least. Part of me genuinely loved her. She was the one who stayed up with me, running her hand through my hair on the countless sleepless nights. She was the woman I made love to more than any other, and she was the mother of my son. But the burden was too heavy. I listened for the click as the door closed behind me. I wish I could have been as decisive as I passed Jeffrey's room. His door was open a crack, just as it always was. It made a long, high-pitched creak as I nudged it forward. Jeffrey was on his side, facing the wall on the far side of the room. His feet stretched outwards and rubbed together. The sight of him made my knees buckle. I slid my hands upward on the door frame until they were straight above my shoulders. For a long time, that room was where I would go to be alone. It was after Chelsea and I had bought that house and before Jeffrey was born. I would often come to that room and stare out the window above his bed. It was like a portal for me. When I looked outside, I could go back to the night where it all went wrong, where I had blundered and not acted as I should have. I was too cowardly to pick up on the cues. I didn't take the girl I longed for. That decision was what had ultimately led me to where I was then. I resisted the urge to go up and rub his shoulder one last time. The view from where I stood would have to suffice. I wish I had the courage to say the three words I held in my heart. For the rest of the journey through the house, my mind alternated between trying to keep quiet and considering the possibility of turning back. There was still time to turn around. 
I could easily return to bed where my wife slept and simply pretend the whole thing never happened. And maybe I could work it all out. I could live happily ever after with the family I built. But if I really wanted to go back to bed, I would have. Atop the flight of old wooden stairs leading to the basement, I paused. I looked down at the black pit below. No amount of adjusting to the darkness would allow my eyes to make out the shapes down there. I flicked the light switch. A single bulb hanging from the ceiling flickered before lighting the room up. The gray concrete floor of the unfinished cellar was covered by a single yellow rug in the middle. Surrounding the rug was a collection of old furniture, sports equipment, partially open boxes, and, of course, the mirror. My breaths were short. Grinding my teeth, I took the first steps down and nearly jumped when the old wooden board croned. I had to force my legs to descend each of the next steps. With each one, the creak of the old staircase seemed to grow louder. I reached the bottom in dead silence, returned. I looked in every cranny, every shadow that was within my line of sight. There was nothing there. My eyes told me that I was alone. And by all means, they should have been correct. However, it wasn't the truth. And I knew that before I had made the decision to go down there in the first place. My phone read 2.58 a.m. Only two minutes remained. I allowed myself a few more moments of illuminated silence before I reached for the light switch. When the basement was dark again, I felt my way to the yellow carpet and positioned myself squarely in front of the mirror. My body trembled profusely. I raced through the possibilities again, trying to reassure myself, as if, through my endless hours of deliberation, I did understand everything, as if it were possible for a man to think through the infinite number of factors, responses, and outcomes, and some idea of how things were going to play out. The arrival was imminent. Before it came, I remembered Noah's last words on the phone. There's only pain for you there. The reflection in the mirror changed. Breaking through the darkness was one white spot just above my shoulder. I turned to look at where it appeared to be in the reflection, but there was only blackness. This was no surprise. I had tested it before. But back in the mirror it had developed. There were now two spots, and another line running below them. The face was there, clearly. It radiated a bright white that hurt the eyes if you looked at it directly for too long. The outlines of the facial features pulsed. Their exact shape was always changing. Corners of the mouth pulled upward into a shape resembling a smile. The breaths came. I could feel the moist air on the nape of my neck. And then it spoke. Its deep voice seemed to come from every direction in the darkness around me. Back again, I see. I take it this means that you've been intrigued by my proposition. I didn't answer. I hated hearing the thing talk. It knew me too well. It spoke with complete understanding of my reason for being in the basement that night. Shall we get started then? It asked, 
You know this is the last time I will come here. You must act tonight or forever lose the opportunity. Lay the rules out for me one last time, I said. I already knew the stipulations, but I took comfort in hearing them again as if I would have some brilliant flash of insight that would have helped me understand everything. One chance to go back. You cannot return here. You cannot go backwards again. All outcomes are final. Tell me how it turned out for the others. What happened to the other people you've done this with? You must decide now, Roger. It answered me abruptly. I have no more patience for your concerns. I care only for your decision now. My knuckles ached from gripping them so tightly. My eyes and mouth in the reflection slowly started to fade. Do it, I said. Take me back. The thing did as I commanded. At first it was all a blur. The darkness was gone, replaced by a range of opaque waves. They ran against each other, colors of all kinds shot out behind them. I heard the muffled sounds of conversation. My body felt lighter, newer. One thing came through clearly. It was the audible voice of a young woman. I recognized it as Amy's immediately. My vision started to clear shortly after. She was right there in front of me. She was 18 years old and she was alive. Her image matched the one I had kept in my mind for all the years. Roger, Amy said, still working on the first beer. All my surroundings became clear. The faint outlines of the shapes around me sharpened. I could see the familiar glass chandelier hanging from the ceiling. Recognizable young faces were leaning on my parents' gray leather couch in the living room. Condensation from the beer can dripped onto my fingers. I looked down at my hands and saw that they were young. A visual scan of my body revealed the same. I looked 18 again. I was 18 again. Amy put her hand over mine. I felt the comforting softness I had fantasized about for what had felt like an eternity. She pulled the beer from my hands, bringing it to her lips. Everything was in perfect order. I was back at the party. The thing had done exactly as it said it would. Amy finished the beer and set it on the table. All the while, her eyes were firmly fixed on mine. Looks like you've got some catching up to do, she said. As I anticipated, she took a step forward. She slid her hand in a straight vertical line from my chest to my stomach. As she let it rest there, I tested my recollection. Next, she will grab me by the collar. Sure enough, her hand slid upwards around my neck and grabbed the shirt. I said her next words along with her inside my head. Why don't you grab us another? she asked. The first time through, I hesitated before speaking. That I remember clearly. My unconfident former self would wait at least five seconds before spitting out the word, Okay. Not this time, 
Blessed with the wisdom of seeing everything in hindsight, I spoke a new set of words. I said what I had been planning to say when all of this was a dream, a time when the situation I found myself in was nothing more than a fantasy, a distant fantasy, impossible to realize within the reality I thought I existed in. Maybe I'll do that, I said, but I'll have to stop at my bedroom on the way back. Might be a little delay. I hope that's okay with you. If they hadn't already, the two timelines officially diverged after that. I hoped that would make it easier to let go of the old life I had abandoned. Nobody would get hurt tonight. It was just a matter of execution. I smiled and pulled Amy's hand from my collar onto hers. I released, looking at her one more time before leaving the room. I wish that moment could have lasted forever. Noah stood near the fridge, just as I remembered. He talked with some girls I hadn't cared to keep in my memory. I grabbed him by the shoulder and yanked him aside. My entrance caught him off guard. Can I help you? he asked. Noah, I need your help. I said, reciting more lines from the mental script in my head. Remember how I told you about the Amy girl from my grade? I think I got her. He bit his lower lip. I don't know, little bro, he said. I think you have the Chelsea girl all lined up. Don't try and bite off more than you can chew now. Yeah, but I've been secretly in love with the Amy girl for like four years. Oh, you should see her. She's the hottest girl in my grade. I know, he said, much to my surprise. You know who she is? Yeah, I think I've seen her a few times. Then why are you trying to talk me out of it? I just think you're being overconfident, he said. You've known for days that you have this Chelsea lined up. Take the sure thing. Don't mess it up. The conversation was already taking too long. I saw both Amy and the younger version of my former wife, Chelsea, come into the front hall. They stopped there and started talking privately. Amy's eyes strayed over in my direction. Chelsea was listening to her and nodding. She also peeked over. Her eyes betrayed her jealousy. Hers was a look that I knew too well. In approximately two minutes, Amy was going to head down the other hall toward the bathroom, or, as I was almost positive now, my bedroom. The first time through, I had been so unsure where exactly she had gone, or perhaps, more accurately, I was uncertain of myself. Instead of following her, I took the easy way out. I settled for the sure thing. I approached Chelsea instead. All because I didn't believe that what I wanted could possibly be attained. That's how it happened. That's the way I ruined everything. Not this time. I stared hard at Noah. His help was instrumental for this to work. My words were firmer than before. Listen, Noah. I'm going for this Amy girl. If it doesn't work, then fine. You can have her. I don't give a damn. He shook his head. I need you to do one thing for me, I continued. If you don't see me for a little while, trust that that means things went well. But please, please just do me one favor. Walk Chelsea home if that happens. Bang her if you want to. I don't care. I'm sure you could probably get her if you wanted. I'm not taking any girl to bed tonight.
Fine, then just walk her home. I need you to do that for me. Noah looked like he was searching for his rebuttal. I didn't stick around for any further deliberation. That part of the sequence was complete. Right on cue, Amy had left Chelsea standing alone and disappeared down the hallway. I grabbed two beers from the fridge and started in her direction. I always imagined that the walk past Chelsea would have been the hardest part. I tried to make it easier on myself. I kept my eyes on the ground, the door, the ceiling, or anywhere that wasn't her. Only from my peripheral vision could I see the look on her face. I recognized that expression as well. More so, I detested it. It was the insecure, desperate longing that I had seen so many times before in our life together that no longer existed. A few feet away, I caught the scent of Chelsea's perfume. One more time, the thought of returning to my former life burrowed into my mind. I entertained the idea. Maybe I could still correct the sequence. Maybe I could somehow say and do the right things to converge the timelines. Perhaps I could recreate all the memories that we were supposed to make going forward. I pushed the thought out of my mind as quickly as I could. I passed Chelsea without giving her a glance. As I walked down the adjacent hallway, the burning sensation of her eyes into the back of my head eased with every step. I didn't bother checking the bathroom on the way to my destination. I pushed the bedroom door open. A slender female figure was sprawled across my bed. The light from the hallway provided just enough brightness for me to see that Amy was smiling. It felt like a dream, but it wasn't. It was real. I didn't offer her a drink. I set the beers down on the night table and leaned over. She wrapped her hands around the back of my neck and pulled me down to her. Her lips met, and I slipped away. I never thought that doing something that seemed so evil on the surface could have ever felt so right. Hours passed. Once we consummated our relationship, Amy didn't take long to fall asleep. The adrenaline still coursing through my veins wouldn't allow me to do the same. From outside the bedroom door, I could hear the party had grown quieter. Much like the last time I was awake in bed while the woman beside me slept, I got out of bed as gently as possible. I tiptoed toward the door and pressed my ear against it. I tried to see if I could hear Chelsea's voice in the remaining bits of conversation. It wasn't there. I went over to the window to see if anyone was hanging around in my front yard... I was relieved to see two people there. Chelsea stood at the end of the driveway, shivering in the cold autumn air. Noah was coming up the driveway with a sweater to put around her. They exchanged a few words before heading down the street in the other direction. Her house was only a few blocks away, nowhere near downtown, and certainly not close to wherever that piece of garbage Troy McAllen camped out that night. As they rounded the corner and went out of sight, a thought occurred to me for the first time, and it scared me. I wonder what it would be like going forward. Would I have to live the rest of my life with all the vivid memories of a timeline that no longer existed? I could still remember my old life with complete clarity. As I returned to lie beside the girl I loved, I prayed. 
I prayed that with time, the old memories would fade away. Hopefully, I could seamlessly adjust and settle into this new life as a young man once more. The thought lingered until I fell asleep. A strange sound woke me the next morning. The sun was starting to rise and faint beams of light were coming in through the window. When I came to my senses, I realized that I was alone in bed. It was not how I was expecting to wake. I heard the sound of the TV from the living room. Shortly after, I heard Amy whimper. I shot up and ran as quickly as my tired legs would take me. Amy sat hunched over, curled into a ball on the couch. Her head was pressed into her palms, her cheeks red. She had the TV on. It was set to our local news channel. Before I had a chance to ask what had happened, I heard the familiar voice, with only slight variation from before, He delivered his report. Tragedy strikes close to home today. The body of 18-year-old Westmount resident Chelsea Arcabello was found in a dumpster behind a bakery near the downtown core. The body shows signs of severe sexual assault and trauma around the neck. All evidence suggests she was strangled to death with a rope. An anonymous tip was given to police this morning, stating that screaming could be heard from the parking lot and a bald man could be seen running from the area shortly after. Police were on the scene within minutes and have since taken homeless man Troy McAllen into custody. Authorities are urging whoever called to step forward and provide more information. The bald man's face came up onto the screen just as I heard the front door push open behind me. Noah stepped in. His mouth was wide open as he took in long gasps of air. Clumps of hair stuck to his forehead where his sweat had dried. He looked up at us in horror as if he thought it was impossible for us to be awake so early in the morning. Blood dripped from the scratches on his face. From inside his half-unzipped jacket, I could see a piece of rope stained completely red. "'What's the matter, Roger?' he said. "'Where were you last night?' I managed to spit out. Didn't you walk Chelsea home and come back? She's gone, Roger. Chelsea wasn't for you. It's best you don't think about her. There's only pain for you there. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our final story for this evening is by Robert Ahern, entitled, What Death Can Join Together. We'd all known Dennis had less than a week, and we braced ourselves for all the good that would do. This was going to tear us apart and leave a ragged, gaping hole in all our lives. But that would be it. It would fit within our understanding of things, and we could all assume he went wherever we thought people go. That would have been so much easier, so much less troubling, than what actually happened. Dennis had been diagnosed with cancer a couple of days after his tenth birthday, and it was all downhill from there. There was never an upswing, never an opportunity for surgery. All the scans showed the same thing. The oily black webs having grown larger and denser. The fact that we were twins and had looked identical right up to when he started chemo just made it worse. There I was right beside him, a perfect image of what he used to be before his hair fell out and his color drained and his cheeks sunk down into his skull. An emaciated ghost constantly contrasted with what he should be. And then finally the doctor shut the case, snuffed out the last wisps of hope. Dennis will most likely not last more than four days, a week at the most. So we'd all set up camp in his musty room at the hospital. The walls were freckled and pea-green. The only light slanted in from between the shutters, glaring bars stretching out across the floor to end just short of Dennis's bed. The staff managed to bring in another, simpler bed for me, and my parents slept in old wicker chairs. Dennis looked really bad at this stage. You could see the shape of his skull. We all wanted to talk to him, to make the most of whatever time was left, but he slept for most of the day, and when he woke up, there'd just be silence. Nobody knew what to say. There were no right words, and there was this underlying fear that the moment anybody interacted with the situation, they'd somehow make it real and it would hit everyone. The first sound would knock us all off the tightrope, and we'd fall into tears and chaos, and wouldn't be able to pull ourselves back up. So there was silence. My parents occasionally forcing smiles that never made it to their eyes. The third day was when it finally happened, when the steady beeping of the heart monitor started to break down into frantic electronic wails and Dennis began to shake feebly as a dry, crackling sound rose up from his mouth. 
My parents exploded out of their chairs, my mother heading straight to Dennis, grabbing his shoulders and pleading at him to stop it and to be all right. My father was at the room door, screaming down the hallways for help. The doctors and nurses at the hospital had changed lately. They started treating Dennis differently. Before, the resuscitations were always these frantic, desperate efforts like hundred-meter sprints. There was a desperate desire to succeed in every single movement. Now it was different, more like a steady jog. These were people who were going through the motions, picking off things they were meant to try from little checklists in their mind. I don't think it would have made a difference either way. The cancer had finally tipped the balance, and Dennis's system just couldn't shoulder it anymore. They called it and left, offering their condolences and saying they'd take away the body when we were ready. The door clicked shut behind us. Me, Mom, Dad, and Dennis' corpse. We all inched closer up to the side of the bed and just looked. My mother cracked, breaking into great howling tears. My father pulled her close, trying to keep it together, but losing it in his own way. No sobs from him, just the occasional tear running down his face and sharp breaths bursting through his clenched teeth. I was just quietly staring at Dennis' face. We all stood there for a long time. I finally realized that this wasn't just one thing. This wasn't a single event. For the first time, my mind started running away with itself and unfolding all the endless implications of this, every one of them causing my gut to sink and for me to miss him so much even though he'd just been here. I was never going to be able to talk to him again. He was never going to laugh at me again. We were never eating dinner again. We were never going to school together again. We were never going to be in the same class in school again or talk during classes at school again. It just kept on going and going as I realized that this wasn't just one person I'd lost. I'd lost a million things. Something that was meant to be a constant presence was gone, and nothing would ever be as good as it should be again. Everything I was going to do would be soured by the certainty that I wouldn't be doing it with him, or that I wouldn't be able to tell him about it later. It had only ever been a childish assumption that any of that would happen. I was the first to see his lips quiver. Mom! Dad! His lips are moving. My parents froze, still clasped against each other. My mother curled over and supported by my father. We looked down as his lips continued to quiver. My parents went quiet again. They must have been trying to hold back hope, assuming it was some kind of nervous tick. But it kept going, and finally, in a dusty, hoarse voice, so faint... It was like you were hearing it on the wind. He said my name. Harry. My father sprinted across the room, yelling for the nurses to come back. 
My mother was clutching her mouth and stumbling back from the bed. The workers tumbled back in and went through the checklist and shocked him with the defibrillators a few times and reached their verdict. We're sorry. He's still dead. But I heard him talk, said my father in a small pleading voice. Look, it could have been gas escaping. But said my father before a tiny, scraping sound cut through the room, everyone turning toward its source. It was coming from Dennis, halfway between a sigh and a croak. Harry, it's all so dark, so cold, so dark, and it's pulling down, pulling at my insides, and taking me down. A moment later, nurses started on their rounds again, but this wasn't some perfunctory run through the checklist. You could see it on their faces, in how hurried their movements were. They didn't know what was happening. They weren't even sure they were doing the right thing. They moved on to the defibrillator again, sending crashing waves of power down through Dennis' chest before listening with a stethoscope. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. One was mumbling. After ten minutes, they all simply stepped back. They'd run the checklist out. Nothing had happened. What's happening? My mother screamed. One of the men, possibly a doctor, answered. Nothing is happening. We try and pump in oxygen and it does nothing. There's no pulse. And we can't induce one for more than a second or two. The body's temperature is down three degrees. He's deceased. But we heard him, I said. I know, but he's dead. The dry grating came again and everyone shut up. Please, Harry, where are you? I walked over to his side. I wasn't relieved he was talking. I was only afraid. This was wrong. I wanted to run. I wanted him to just be gone so I could cry with my parents and be done with it. But I kept walking and put my hand on his. His bony, cold, and clearly dead hand. I'm here, I said. I can see gray. A little bit of gray, but it's so far away. I don't just see it. I feel it. I feel it, and I never knew something could be so far away. I'm already so far down, but I need to go so much further to get to the gray. I didn't know how to respond, so I just stood there. Stood there and listened to him talk about the darkness and the distant gray smudge. Sometimes he'd answer me, sometimes he wouldn't. A lot happened around me in the next few hours. Everyone who worked at the hospital must have been in and out. Even my parents started to leave sometimes when they accepted. I was the only one Dennis seemed to be aware of. Every type of doctor they employed looked at Dennis, and not one of them understood. They started moving him around on a stretcher, taking him to the equipment they couldn't just bring to him. I had to come along. I was the only one who could keep him talking. 
It was a long time before anything turned up. They'd gotten desperate and had put Dennis in an MRI machine. They'd fully prepped a corpse and put it in a machine for the living. My entire family was in the room. A cold, confused fear had settled in my gut, making me feel a little bit like throwing up. I think we've got something, said the technician looking at the monitors. Please, just tell us what's happening, said my mother. She'd moved past terror and hope and was now, above all else, exhausted, her red face slack and empty. This scan looks for where blood is in the brain. Well, the thing is that none of the blood in the brain is moving. We know that from his pulse, but something is happening in there. Something the machine can only pick up a little, but there is some kind of activity. Now, I, I can't be sure, but I think the activity is clustered around some of the parts that control movement. Everything else is totally dead. He's obviously conscious. He's using complete sentences, but... But what? implored my father. But it's like whatever's doing the thinking is somewhere else, still interacting with the stuff that does the talking. That's exactly right, came a voice behind us. I looked over my shoulder and saw an old man in a gray business suit. He had a well-trimmed silver beard and was all around a strange contrast to the clumsy chaos that had engulfed the hospital. Who are you? asked the technician. I'm Daniel Quonis, he said, handing the technician a crisp business card. I'm with the Orpheus Institute. We're a semi-private medical research body, and we've dealt with a few cases similar to this one. The hospital president has already agreed to let us look into this. Almost invisibly, a number of men had moved in behind Quonis, and we're now making their way over to the technician. These men will help explain the confidentiality situation surrounding issues like this. We'll handle the boy from here. More men, these ones in pure white scrubs with a strange logo embroidered on the left breast, got Dennis back on a stretcher and led us all into the hallway. We followed wordlessly, never thinking to say anything because... At least these new people represented new possibilities, a completely new road that might lead to an explanation. They rolled Dennis into an operating theater, and my mother gasped. Look, just what are you doing? said my father in a husky voice that made it obvious he was still holding in tears. Cronus who had been striding ahead of the stretcher with a speed that belied his age, had stopped once we got to the theater and was now taking deliberate care to look all three of us in the eyes. We were still in the hallway, the operating theater door shut behind us. He answered in a low, comfortable tone. We're not performing surgery. It's just the quietest part of the hospital and there are no distractions in there. We want nothing more than to understand what has happened to your son. 
This sort of thing has happened before. Your son is conscious, and as we understand, he will only talk to his brother here. We want to use Harry to ask Dennis our questions. We believe this would work best if he and Harry were alone. We've got the theater wired so that we can hear the answers. My parents didn't say anything for a while. My father broke the silence with a weak, staggered word. Do you think he might come back? I don't know that even if he does, it won't be for long, but I'd really like him back for however long. I didn't say enough. I wasn't big enough to say the things we had to say to each other. If such a thing is possible, I swear we will do everything in our power to make it happen. We've prepared a private waiting room for you two. Cronus gestured down to the turn in the hallway. There were two people in the white scrub standing there. Pete and Shirley will lead you to there if you would please go with them. My parents began to shuffle down the corridor. My mother still buried in my father's side. My father kept throwing back looks over his shoulder at me like he was afraid I'd vanish. A moment later they were gone and I felt Quonus' hand come down on my shoulder. I turned to face him and he knelt down so we were closer to being level. I know this is very hard on you, Harry. I know this must be the worst day of your life. But do you think you're up to a quick history lesson? I couldn't bring myself to answer properly, but some curiosity managed to rise through the delirium and shock, and I nodded. Cronus smiled. One of the most significant moments of human history was the moon landing, and it's not even the fact itself that makes it so important. It's that we had contact with them the entire time they were up there. They were sending radio signals back to Earth, and we could talk to them. Do you think the moon landing would be what it was if we didn't have that kind of connection to our men as they strode the unsettling and inhospitable surface of a place we were never meant to have knowledge of? What if they'd just gone up and had never come back? What if we knew for certain that they'd reached their destination but had no signals from them? I was still quite out of it, so I can't say I was properly digesting it all. I just slurred out. Uh, I don't know. They didn't know if they could get the astronauts back. It was a very real possibility that they'd be left to die up there, stranded. Yet they still did it. It didn't matter if the mission was a failure. It didn't matter if there was no triumphant return. Do you know what mattered? What mattered more than anything was speaking to them while they were up there. To have that connection to three brave men in the void, describing man's first steps into the unknown. If they had never come back, it wouldn't have changed anything so long as those of us down here managed to make that connection to the beyond. As long as we, for however long, had been up there, and to describe the soil, and to explain the feeling of being so light, men to tell us what the earth looked like partially, obscured by the lunar horizon. 
men to teach us about a new world. His hand tightened on my shoulder. None of that would have been possible without the people in Houston, without the men who talked to the astronauts, kept them focused, made sure we got the information we needed. Harry, we believe Dennis is in a very strange place that humanity would do well to learn about. You are Houston. Your brother is an astronaut. He pulled a laminated sheet out from under his lapel. Here's a sheet with some topics you should focus on and questions you should ask. This should help you get the most useful and needed information. But the most important thing is to keep him talking. Stop talking for five seconds and you could lose him. I accepted the card, having given up on reaching a decent understanding of the situation. Cronus ushered me into the operating theater and shut the door behind me. I was alone, and the only sound an almost inaudible ringing that emanated from the mass of stainless steel racks and implements and the cold, sturdy operating table Dennis was lying on. I approached the table, and, in need of any sort of guidance, I looked at the laminated sheet, which read, General Principles Try to keep your loved one, the subject, unaware of their deceased state. Past experience suggests that the shock may cause disconnection. Maintain constant conversation, as this is being shown to help maintain the connection. Do not ask leading questions, such as whether your loved one, or the subject, is having experiences in line with your own religious beliefs. First step. Ask your loved one, the subject, to describe their experience and or surroundings. Encourage them as to be... A gasp pulled my attention away from the sheet. Harry, Dennis said. Yes, it's me, I answered, grabbing his hand. There was now no doubt that he really was dead. The hand was ice cold and the fingers had locked in place at odd angles with rigor mortis. His entire body had gone from the sickly white of the dying to the rain-cloud shade of the dead. I got to the gray, to the ground, came down easy like a leaf, cold. I'm standing there now. Dennis, can you describe where you are? It's... Still gray, but it's more real now, solid. Gray sand underneath, gray ocean behind me. Gray clouds above. Don't remember going through the clouds, but they're there now. The clouds are screaming. An ocean? I asked. Can you see anything in the ocean? Dennis took in a phlegmy, pointless breath. Far away, the horizon it gets dark. There's a dark, hungry line where everything stops, even the clouds. Darkness is clawing, moving like it's alive. Miles and miles of angry, hungry dark. Can't go there. Can't go that way. At this point... I lost the thread of exchange as 
perspective suddenly hit. I realized all the things I didn't understand and the fact that whatever Dennis was, he wasn't alive. I broke, crying and wailing and digging my face into his bare, emaciated ribs, cold like meat straight out of a refrigerator. I kept squeezing his hand harder and harder, pushing the stiff fingers closer together. Dennis, please come back, please, wherever you are, just get back here. Harry, are you crying? It's hard to tell. So much here already sounds like crying. His words struck me deep enough to make my sobs catch in my throat, and I just started looking at him again, settling back to my previous catatonic distance from what was happening. I can't come back, no getting back. Like spilling something on the ground, no getting it all back inside and right again. It took a few seconds to force myself to accept this, but I carried on, hoping that maybe I could steer him towards some sign that he was wrong. What's in the other direction, away from the ocean? That's the way I have to go. If I try and swim, the darkness will tear me up, shred away everything until only my pain is left, and it'll toss that into the clouds. Into the clouds, and I'll scream. Dennis, tell me what's in the other direction. Just the sand. The gray sand on and on. Not many bad things yet. Not many bad things to see yet. There'll be more when I get where I'm going. I'm going to start walking now, Harry. Where are you meant to be going, I asked. As I became aware that I'd started digging my nails anxiously into my forearm, there was something nauseatingly, dreadfully true about everything he was saying. It was like the first time you learn the world is round and it feels weird for a few seconds. But soon you get used to the idea and you see it's the truth. That's the big secret. And it doesn't matter how flat the ground feels. It doesn't matter how little sense it makes. It's true. Dennis ignored my question and continued talking. I can see another person. Can you talk to them? I asked, trying to keep my voice steady, feeling like I shouldn't be the one who couldn't keep it together. I suppose I could, but I can't. What do you mean? It's just not a talking kind of place. We were supposed to have done all our talking before we came here. Now we should just keep quiet. But you're talking to me, Dennis. But my voice isn't here. My voice is all the way up there with you. Dennis, I said now squeezing my eyes to fight back tears. Dennis, please tell me what's happening. I think I've finally died, and what's happening now is what happens next, the thing that was always going to happen next. It feels right in a scary way. It's been expecting me for so long, since before I was even a fuzzy little thing that might happen since before our parents and their parents and so far back, 
It's been expecting me. Please stop talking like that. You don't talk like that. You never have. Sorry, you just sort of see things differently here. Some things, you know, without ever being told. Some things you forget. I couldn't think of anything to say and started to worry, remembering that if I paused too long, he could stop answering. Hey, said Dennis, and the edges of his mouth strained out, awkwardly imitating a smile. I see a few more... more people. They're all naked, but really naked. Their clothes are off, and they're all gray and wrinkly. But that's not it. You can see, kind of see inside them, like all the walls have fallen down, and you can see who they are. All their thoughts and feelings just kind of hanging around them like ghosts. It's like someone pulled the clothes off their whole past. They're so naked, Harry. He made a slight coughing sound that was meant to be a laugh. That's really scary. Oh, I thought you might have found it funny. I don't think we're going to laugh at the same stuff anymore. I think you're different now. I guess that makes sense. So what are all the people doing? Most of them are moving same direction as me, towards the center. The center of what? It's just called the center, the center of this place. Maybe the center of everything. But what? I repeated, starting to lose control. Why do you have to go? I don't have to. Nobody has to. Just like you don't have to shake someone's hand when they put it out or answer them when they talk to you. But it would feel wrong not to. It's what you're meant to do and there's not any other good options. You don't want to stand still. What happens when you stand still? Depends. A few days ago I passed this woman. A few days? I said, gripping the cold steel of the operating table, as I was filled with an eerie sense of vertigo. You haven't even been dead for a day. I passed her a few days ago, he said, carrying on like he hadn't heard me. She didn't reach the center. She just sat down, started going her own way. She pulled one side of her rib cage out, and it's all stretched, spreading up to her left so high, stretching out the arm, grabbing its corner. Most of her skin started to get hard and flaky like old wood or crumbling stone. I can see her. Musician. She liked music and kind of thought of her life like a song. Sometimes it repeated itself, some bad notes here and there, but it was pulling itself together. She was reaching the chorus, and it ended. It was over so fast, and she can't accept it. She picked this sharp rock off the ground, and she's scraping it past her ribs like a huge harp or something. Angry. Trying to make music, keep the song going. But it's an awful sound. Sawing bone, and it's never going to replace what should have come next. She's already grown into the ground. 
She's going to be here forever trying to make the music she missed out on. There was nothing to say to that, so I just went quiet for a while, assuming he'd keep talking. He didn't. Dennis! Dennis? No answer. A terrified jolt ran through me, and I started slamming my fist onto his chest. Dennis, come back! Dennis! A growl tore out of his mouth, and his frame thrashed upward, causing me to jump back and tumble down onto the floor, smashing into surgeon's shelves and causing gleaming surgical instruments to rain down around me. I didn't have time to think before I'd forced myself up again and bent over the operating table to stare desperately into my brother's eyes. I took his hand again, squeezing it as hard as I could. Harry, he said, and relief flooded through me. It's been so long. So long. It's been years. What? I've been walking for years. Years and years, and it keeps getting worse. It hasn't been a day. It's been so many years, and everything keeps getting worse. What? What's worse? It gets worse closer to the center. There's so many people now, thousands, tens of thousands, and they're all walking to the center. What's so terrible? There's more. So many more, like the girl with the harp I told you about, stuck in place, trying to fix what happened, angry about what happened, rooted to the ground, moaning, calling out names of the people they think did this to them. Sometimes a few join up, and when they get all hard and crackly like old statues, they start to grow together, start to feel each other's pain. Sometimes... There's mountains of them. Entire landscapes of people crying about how unfair it all is. I'm still walking. But where are you going? I told you, the center. I'm getting close now. All the clouds with their screaming faces are curving. All curving and being pulled in the same direction, twisting their way into the center. Please just stop walking and come back. Can't. No coming back. Besides, I have to keep moving like everyone else. Doing something weird is the quickest way for the walkers to notice you. What are the walkers? Started... Started seeing them more as I got closer to the center. They're all over the place now. They're these things walking around on three legs like stilts covered in sharp black shells like thorns. Remember the aquarium? They're kind of like those urchins we saw at the aquarium. But the top part, the main part, it's more exact, kind of artsy. Like a sculptor designed the shape. It reminds you of some kind of chess piece. When they notice you, they come over to you toppling towards you, but never falling over on those legs. Spindly. Yeah, that's what you'd say. They're, they're spindly legs. And they stop right over you. You're between their legs, and you see the holes underneath their main bit, and the tendrils come out. 
Red, winding tendrils with these itchy hairs come down, and they start curling and swirling all around you. You almost don't mind at first because they're red. You've seen nothing but gray and black for years, and the tendrils are red, and it's beautiful. But then they touch you. They touch you, and it's awful. Every bad thing you've ever felt, every bad thing that's ever happened to you starts bubbling up to the surface, drowning you. All the pain that ever went into you rises up and out, and the walkers feed on it. They lick it with their tendrils. They love the taste. The taste of all the things that shouldn't have happened. They love to taste it, the misery. Eventually they get full and move on, and you, you get up and keep walking. Jesus, Dennis. Jesus. It's fine. They're bad, but you get a sense of perspective here. Sure, they're scary for you, but they're nothing compared to the center. They're bottom feeders, moss that grew on the outskirts. If they're really like sea urchins, then the center... The center must be like a shark or a whale or some huge thing at the bottom of the sea that's too big to come up near the surface. You've never said things like this before. I don't know how to describe it. When you're here, stuff just breaks down a little and you don't always need to have learned a word to know it. This place is less obsessed with causes and two plus two equal four. Its job isn't to make sense. But what is its job? I don't know. Maybe I'll find out at the center. It went quiet again, and this time I wasn't sure I wanted to stop him drifting off. I wasn't sure I wanted to hear any more of this. But regardless of what I wanted, another groan soon crept out of his mouth and he was back. Oh God, I see it now. I see the center. Slowly but unmistakably, his hand began to close around mine, overcoming the rigor mortis to press into the flesh of my fingers like an iron vice. I kept trying to pull myself free, nearly yanking him off the table in the process, yet his grip remained agonizingly firm. It's inside. Inside this huge beehive-like thing floating above the ground. It's gray, too, dull and colorless and covered with streaks and ridges. Like it used to be liquid and then hardened, or, or like it's made of web or something. So big, Harry. I've never seen anything like it. All the clouds are swirling down into the hole at the top of it, and they're still screaming... Hundreds of holes, messy, ragged holes, pitch black on the inside. It's bigger than cities, Harry, and everyone's heading towards it. Thousands and thousands are swarming under it, pushing against each other to climb the bridges leading from the ground right up to the holes, right into the pitch black. The center's in there, Harry. I'm here. Please, I said, whimpering with the pain in my hand. 
You can't go in. There's nothing good in that place. I knew this as a fact, not just because of the description, but from a gut feeling. I knew that what he was talking about was real and fundamental, as important a part of our existence as the sun and the moon and birth, but also terribly wrong, dripping with corruption to its core. Where else is there to go? I'm at one of the bridges. Please, you can come back. No, that would be like going back into the womb. Can't be done. This is what's next. Oh, what? Why? Oh, God. I'm starting to feel something. I think the center is doing it. I'm getting bitter. Every mean, spiteful, angry thing in me. It's swelling, spreading out and smothering the rest of me. I'm so mad, Harry. I'm getting so much smaller and my hate is getting so much bigger. His hand tightened and I screamed. Why was it me, Harry? Why was it me and not you? What did you do that I didn't? What did I do that you didn't? I'm sorry, Dennis. I'm so sorry. I cried in tears. His voice changed. It was still quiet, but it was rabid. Each word growled and soaked with vitriol. I hate you. Do you know that? Still able to stand. Still able to run. Still able to breathe. I hate you. I was hurting all the time and you just stood there feeling sorry for me. You couldn't feel any of it. You were just waiting for me to die so you could do everything I never would. I yelled and screamed for someone to come in and help. I just about pulled Dennis off the table, his torso hanging over the side, held straight by whatever force was allowing him to squeeze my hand. Throughout everything, his eyes remained as dead as they'd always been. And then he went limp. His hand let go. His back sagged and he crashed to the floor. Dennis had broken three of my fingers, but shock kept the pain at bay. I fell to my knees in order to see his face and slapped him repeatedly, looking for any sign he was still there. He gasped again, fainter than ever. Oh, no. Oh, Jesus. I'm inside, and it's so much worse than I thought. It's beyond worse. It's so far past the worst I thought something could be. Please, Dennis, listen. Please, tell me what's happening. It's the center. It's so big, big, and floating above me. It's so much bigger than the hive. So much bigger than what's outside. The whole inside is so much bigger. It's so big. It's gray, too. Always gray, gray. And cracked like stone all over. Endless miles of it. His voice had changed. It was whiny and small and frightened. 
It's hurting me, Harry. It's hurting me more than I've ever been hurt, and it hasn't even noticed me. Please, the man told me, you need to describe it. He said if you kept talking, you might stay. It's so big, he said, his voice wobbling and breaking like he was crying. His fingers are bigger than skyscrapers, and it has so many fingers, millions, and ribs. The body is all ribs, or are they just fingers all folded up? I don't know. But there are so many, and they're so big, Harry. And the masks, Jesus, the masks. What masks? The masks, its faces, bigger than countries, all different. Some, the eyes are perfect circles. Others have huge pointy holes where the mouths should be. Some are blank. Some have eight eye holes and some look like human faces, like perfect human faces with deep, dark, hollow eyes. The inside of them is, all of them is so dark. A living, pulsing dark, beating as one. It's so huge, you can feel it pressing in on you, filling the air with negativity and crushing you with its weight. From inside, you can feel the evil in you reaching out like a baby, reaching for its mother and Jesus Christ, Harry. Dennis was breathing in and out, faster and faster in shallow, fearful breaths, instincts disregarding the fact that he no longer needed air. Dennis, talk to me. What is it? What is it? It's not the devil. No. That's what I thought at first, but it's not. It's it's more like God. It's like, if God hated everything, his breathing quickened again. Oh, Jesus, it sees me. Please, please promise me one thing. Just one thing, please. What? What is it, Dennis? Please, Harry, please. Don't ever die. One last breath escaped his lips. In one final animalistic burst of desperate energy, I did everything I could think of to get him back. I hit him, shook him, pleaded, but he was really gone this time. I knelt there in the room for a long while, his last words etching themselves into a deep part of my mind I knew I could never dig them out of. The next few hours... In fact, the next few days were a blur. I remember men in the Institute's white scrubs coming in and dragging me away from the body. I remember getting my hand seen to and put in a cast and sling. I remember Daniel Conus sitting me down in a bright white room and interrogating me. He called it a conversation, of course, but it was an interrogation, a warm interrogation conducted by a man who could be kind if it meant getting what he wanted. He asked me if I had any visions or any strong sensations, if I thought Dennis was telling the truth, 
and if I could explain the ways in which Dennis had been acting differently. I was detached and drowsy from exhaustion, trauma, and the pain of my broken bones, and just answered honestly. Before I was released, Coronas made sure I memorized a phone number and had me sign a load of confidentiality forms, making it very clear that not a word of anything I'd experienced could leave the hospital. I was to call if I started experiencing any phenomena I thought were related to Dennis, and finally they left. My parents and I took a taxi home. We didn't talk about what had happened after Dennis died. So far as my parents were concerned, Dennis was now properly dead and not coming back, and so we returned home and went to bed. The next morning, we had a wordless breakfast with an extra chair pulled out. The years flew by, and the experiences became something I had no choice but to live with. When my mind wandered, sometimes I'd find myself steered back toward those dreadful thoughts. But mostly I managed to keep living, to accept it all as something I couldn't understand. The fact that Dennis was gone was always worse than the way he went, however terrifying and unnatural it was. But lately, I've been having a recurring dream... At first it was vague and incomplete, but every few nights when it repeated, it got longer and more vivid. It always starts the same, with me and Dennis, both of us kids again, on a green hill on a bright, clear day, crisp air sighing past us. I can't remember most of the words, but the gist is that he's bragging, showing off, saying that Dad loves him more, that he's better than me, and that he's going to keep being better for as long as he's alive. He's going to keep making Dad love him more for as long as he's able. And I get upset, far angrier than I'd ever have gotten if he said those things in real life. I see a rock, and without thinking I pick it up and attack him with it, knocking him over and beating him again and again until his skin is swollen and torn and parts of his skull are visible. He manages to push me off and run, and I follow, never thinking twice about it. I chase him so far until he finally runs into a pass between two mountains in a long, dark range that I somehow never see until that point. The range extends to either side, seemingly forever, and the sky above it is saturated with heavy, dark clouds. I always stop running at that point, knowing that I've chased him far enough the job is done. I start to leave my body, surging forward down the past, no longer myself, but a nameless, thoughtless observer, gliding like a ghost for lack of legs. He careens down the dark pass, on and on into a sunless, barren country on the other side, a place where the soil is gray and dry. He runs for ages, but eventually stops, stops and falls and curses me, screams about how much he hates me, how much I cost him by driving him into this place. He rages for what feels like an eternity. Then a second person arrives, sometimes a man, sometimes a woman, sometimes old, sometimes young. 
They say they, too, were driven past the mountains, or that they wandered past them by mistake and can't get back over. Dennis always says the same thing. Then let's suffer together. Let's hurt together. And this person always latches on to Dennis, and he reciprocates, and they scream or cry and say they want to see the people who wronged them skinned alive. And more always come. A trickle first, then a flood, latching on to Dennis and the first person, all of them clasping together and piling into a giant, deafening mass of squirming bodies. Before long, it's huge, scraping the clouds. Then there's a rumbling, a massive, shifting sound. The countless bodies begin to rearrange, forming deep canyons of flesh that make up the horrendous, rage-filled outline of a face. There's a shift greater than any earthquake. The pile moves, rolling forward, pulling itself with enormous appendages made of the miserable and the bitter and the despairing. It inches and tumbles on and on, crashing down and dragging itself onwards with an overwhelming, apocalyptic din. And then I see it's headed for the mountain range. It's headed back to the bright place with all its anger, hate, and vengeance. As much as it's made of millions and millions of people, I remain aware it's still one thing, a single entity with one will. It's the hatred of everyone buried within it. All the way back to the first to curse, his rage trapped inside, directed at the first to sin. As I watch, the pile approaches the mountains. Then I wake up. I think something's coming. Something that got started a long time ago. Something that strips away everything that's good and builds itself on whatever's left. I think it's almost strong enough to set out, to start moving. And I think that when it gets here, the living will be no better off than the dead. Thanks for joining me this week for tonight's regularly scheduled Tales of Terror. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Tonight's program has been brought to you by Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly, your host, Otis Jiry. Got a scary tale of your own you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at chillingtalesfordarknights.com for your chance to have me bring your sinister story to life. If you enjoyed what you heard and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment for your chance to be entered into a weekly prize drawing. Your feedback means a lot to us. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, Do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. If you can never get enough spooky stories and can't wait until next week for more and haven't already, 
Be sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for more than 500 free audio horror stories, or the Otis Jari channel, my own digital home away from home, where you'll find dozens of previously released horror and sci-fi stories from yours truly. If you'd like to connect with or support me and CTFDN, visit the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights Facebook page or at their website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, where you can support our programs by becoming a patron and get access to hundreds of stories, all ad-free. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with another pair of terrifying tales that'll keep you up all night. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>